You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning. Hi. Well, um, my family and I are really glad to be here this morning. Uh, we have known about Roots Community Church, yeah, for about five years when, when Alec and Jamie first moved to Louisville and started telling us about this church that they loved. We've known about how faithful and joyful uh, you are as a church for many years. Uh, we had the opportunity to visit uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, just just come in and, and finally worship with you. And then now we get to be here and we're really glad to be opening, I'm really glad to be opening the word uh, with us this morning. I was asked to preach on a very small and manageable topic uh, from a very small and manageable text. Uh, Alec called me and asked me if I would preach on the supremacy of Christ from the whole New Testament. And he, he did tell me he had 45 minutes last week to go through three verses in Colossians so that I could have three hours if I needed to this morning. So that, that was the agreement. No, but, but all, all jokes aside, um, yeah, this, this is really going to be more of what we call a, a topical sermon. Uh, I know that here at Roots, you're, you're more used to maybe sticking to one text and, and really finding uh, the truth and, and studying it and analyzing it in depth, uh, taking a tree and, and just looking at the bark and looking at the branches and the leaves and the color and the texture of this one tree. And I think that's, that's, that's awesome. That's really helpful. That's really good. And so uh, this morning is going to be a little bit different. Uh, so this morning, rather than, than looking at one tree, uh, I want to invite you to hop on this expositional helicopter with me, and we're going to fly up, and we're going to be looking at the forest. We're, we're not going to have time to be looking at just one tree, one branch, one leaf. We're really going to scan the forest, and we are going to be uh, looking at various trees. I'm going to point out different clusters of trees, then we're going to move over here and look over here and then move over here. And so it might look like we're going really fast. It might look like there's a lot of information because, again, I'm more used to just looking at the one tree. And so I know this might be a little bit different from what you're used to, uh, but it's going to be okay. You're, you're not going to get lost. I'll try to keep you uh, not lost. And I really just have one main idea today. So it's just one main idea. This is the one thing that I want us to see in the forest. And so if you can just keep your eyes on this main idea, we'll be fine. All right. So the, the main idea this morning, the main thing we're going to see, I'm going to try to show you, is that the mission of God, the mission of God and thus his desire for our lives is that we might see the supremacy of Christ. God's mission and his desire for our lives is that we might see the supremacy of Christ. That's all we're going to look at. So the, the phrase, the supremacy of Christ, it doesn't appear in the New Testament. And so instead, I'm going to be using words like the glory of Christ and the authority of Christ and the majesty of Christ as well. But that, that's, I mean the same thing by all those things. So we're going to begin by looking at, at the mission of God. The mission of God. And my first point is that God desires to be known and enjoyed in all his glory. God desires to be known and enjoyed in all his glory. 
Did you know that? Do you believe that? Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works amongst the peoples. Psalm 96 verse 3. But but the Bible doesn't just call us to declare the glory of Christ. It doesn't just call us to talk about how awesome God is. Rather, God himself has the goal and is committed to showing himself as the supreme glorious being. I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 28-22. So God is committed to this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. This is his mission. This is what he's about. So it's awesome to know that God, the God of the universe, is so committed to being known, to be known by us. So so far, the verses that I've just mentioned, uh, these are all from the Old Testament, and I know this is supposed to be a sermon on the New Testament. We'll get there. But I wanted to start by showing you that this whole section of the forest that we call the Old Testament is all about screaming, God is glorious, and he wants to be known by you. That's what the Old Testament is all about. So the mission of God is that he wants to be known. The second part of the mission of God, which really brings us into the New Testament, and this is kind of point number two, Christ came so that we might see him in his supreme glory. Christ came so that, there's a purpose here, so that we might see him in his supreme glory. So this is a little bit of a bigger point, and so I'm going to break this down a little bit more. So I don't want you to lose me here. Christ came to reveal the glory of the Father in in three ways. Through his words, through his deeds, and through his spirit. Through his words, it's very clear as you read the Gospels. When you read things like John chapter uh, 10 verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 5 verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. If you just listen to Jesus' words, you would know that when you are looking at Christ, you're looking at God. That when you see the glory of Christ, you're seeing the glory of God. Just by listening to him. That's just what he came to say, to teach. So Christ reveals the full glory of God through his words. Christ reveals the full glory of God through his deeds. Through what he did. Let's take a look at John chapter 14. We're going to camp out here just for a few minutes. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. It's also in the screen. I'm just going to be reading it beginning in verse 8. Philip said to him, oh, actually, I guess let me tell you what's going on here. So uh, in this section of the Gospel of John, Jesus is spending his last couple of hours with his disciples. He's going to be arrested A couple of hours later, he's going to be killed just a couple of hours later. So this is his last time, this last couple of conversations with his disciples. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. 
And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Christ reveals the full glory of God. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the curriculum of the school of Jesus is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I am here to show you God. I am here so that you can know God. I am here so that you can believe God. I am here so you can love God, so you can treasure God. And, and if, you, if my words aren't enough, then I want you to believe on account of my works. That's what he says in verse 14, on account of the works themselves. And so what are some of the works that Jesus does to show the glory of the Father? Let me just scan for you the section of the forest of the New Testament that we call the book of Matthew. What do we see in the book of Matthew? What does Jesus do? What are his deeds in the book of Matthew? Well, Christ in the book of Matthew has authority over people. Matthew chapter 4 verse 20. Christ has authority over paralysis. Chapter 8 verse 6. He has authority over illness and disease. Chapter 9 verse 22. Over the wind and the water. Chapter 8 verses 23 through 27. He has authority over sin. Chapter 9 verse 2. He has authority over nature. Chapter 21 verses 18 through 19. Christ has authority over history. Chapter 26 verse 64. Christ has authority over the individual destinies of human beings. Chapter 7 verse 21 to 23. Christ has authority over his own destiny. Chapter 16 verse 21. Christ has authority over space, time, and the future. Chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. Just in Matthew. There is no doubt in the first gospel that Christ is the supreme being in the universe and he wants you to know it. So he reveals the glory of God through his words, through his authority, through his power, through his dominion. He also reveals the glory of God through his spirit through his spirit. There's a reason why John Newton wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There's a reason why he describes his experience, his, his Christian conversion, as, as, as finally seeing. And it's a biblical reason. Becoming a Christian is being able to see. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 26. We're going to see how the spirit and this blindness, this ability to see are connected. Acts chapter 26. Paul here is giving a testimony before King Agrippa near the end of the book of Acts. 
And uh, let's read uh, what Paul says. He's about to share his own testimony. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to cake against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. So pause here for a second. So Jesus is about to tell Paul why he has appeared to him. This is important. Why is Jesus appearing to Paul? Verse 16, second half of verse 16. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So Saul, the reason that, I'm showing myself to you. The reason I'm appearing before you today is to appoint you as a servant, as a witness. A witness of what? A witness of me. You have seen me now. And I want you to be a witness of those things in which I will appear already and I will continue to appear to you. So Jesus appeared to Saul so that Saul might see him so that he might bear witness of what he has seen. But I really just want to emphasize this here. Paul didn't just hear a voice say, Saul, I have a message for you. I I want you to pass this message to the Gentiles. Paul, Saul, didn't just hear a voice. He saw a person. Christianity, we might almost say, is fundamentally not about hearing a message and spreading the, the, the message. It's about seeing a person and bearing witness to that person. It's about seeing. A Christian is one whose eyes have been opened to who Christ is. And notice how Jesus describes his plans for the Gentiles. In verse 17 here. I'll just read it to you. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As you probably know, we are all born spiritually blind. And what this means is that even though the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, we just don't see it. People just don't see it. And so we just go back to playing video games and scrolling our phones. We just don't see it. The problem of humanity is a blindness problem. We just don't see God. We can't see God. And so what does Christ do? Well, Christ came to show himself physically, as we saw. 
so people would see him, hear his words, see his authority. And that was all fine and good when you could actually see Jesus and touch Jesus and and see the storm stop and see Lazarus raised from the dead. That's all fine. But what about us? How do we see Christ? How do we behold Christ? We can't see him. He's not here. How do we do that? How are our eyes opened today? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This chapter will help us see how Gentiles, like my guess most of us here, have our eyes open. So in this chapter, Paul is contrasting the old covenant with the people of Israel that God established through Moses with the new covenant. The new covenant. And uh, Paul is going to be talking about this idea of veiling And he's going to look back at how Moses sometimes wore a veil after he had finished talking with God. And so just to give you a little bit of the context, what's going on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, uh, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So the blindness is this blindness we're born with, and you can't see Christ because there's a veil. It's like this spiritual veil that's covering so that you can't see. And in verse 14, notice what he says in verse 14. It's Christ. It is through Christ that it is taken away. But, and then if we flip a couple of verses later to verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this is conversion. This is what John Newton was saying. I one was, what once was blind, but now I see. But the question I want to ask is, how is this? How is the veil removed? Who takes it away? How, how do we become people who are able to see? Does Jesus do that? Is it Jesus who does that? Well, notice verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who removes the veil of our blindness so that we can behold the glory of the Lord. The Spirit is the one who does his work in us so that we can say, I once was blind, but now I see. So we don't need Jesus to appear to us in a dream. We don't don't need to witness some sort of crazy miracle in order to believe. God is here. Christ is here. You step outside, all you will see is creation shouting, Christ is here, and he's sovereign over it all. And it's the spirit that opens our eyes so that we can see that and behold that. It's the spirit. 
God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know God? Do you love God? Do you treasure God? It's because the Spirit gave you eyes to see. So this is all number two. Christ came so that we can see him through his words, through his deeds, not through his spirit. So I've been trying to show you that part, the mission of God and what Christ came to do. But my guess is that some of you are, this whole idea of the supremacy of Christ and the glory of God and and seeing Christ, it's maybe just a little vague. It's just a little abstract, trying to figure out, so, okay, so that's that's great. What about now? Well, I'm going to move on to the second part of that that main main point that I gave you at the beginning, the mission of God and thus his desire for our lives is that we might see the supremacy of Christ. We're going to start to look at that aspect now. And now we're going to get into point number three here. Point number three is that the goal of the Christian life is to see the supremacy of Christ. The goal, if you're a Christian, the goal of your life is to see the supremacy of Christ. Let me show you this from a couple of New Testament texts. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Why do you strive to live a pure life? Why do you go through all the work of trying to live a godly life, a holy life, of of trying not to be greedy, of putting sin aside, of killing the desires? Why do you go through all that trouble? What's in it for you? What's the motivation? According to Jesus, it's seeing God. You are blessed when when you have a pure heart because you will see God. Seeing Christ in all his glory is the reason we're running this race. But isn't the goal of the Christian life a little bit different? Isn't it like just to honor God and to love one another and to live holy lives? Isn't that what we're called to do? Well, yes, yes, we're called to these things. We're called to live life in a certain way, and, 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 and those are th- good things. But, but I'm asking what the goal of that is. What's the goal of that? Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The reason we love one another, the reason we serve one another, the reason we strive for peace with one another is to see the Lord. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's the motivation. And of course, this doesn't happen in our lifetime. Seeing the Lord the way that the author of Hebrews is describing here only happens when we die or when Jesus returns. Revelation 22 gives us a sneak peek 
of this finish line. Let me just read a couple of these verses from the last chapter in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will not need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here we have a sneak peek of what is waiting for us at the finish line. And what do we see? It's the Lamb. It's Christ. That is our prize. The goal of the Christian life, the prize of, of running this race is seeing, finally seeing Christ. It's all over the New Testament. So in one sense, I feel like I'm finished preaching my sermon. I hope I've convinced you this is all over. This is what God wants. This is what Christ came to do. But again, I wonder if maybe this feels just a little vague, a little abstract. Okay, so when we die, we're going to see Christ. Good. And maybe when he returns, we're going to see him. But what about today? What about like right now, this afternoon? What is this whole thing about seeing the glory of Christ, seeing the supremacy of Christ? What does that have to do with today? Some of you, when the service is over, you have a whole afternoon, whole evening, where you have to spend time with your spouse. And things are just not good. There's been a lot, there hasn't been a lot of warmth Recently, there's been a lot of just bickering. Just a lot of disagreements, maybe some words that have been spoken, hurtful words. Some of you wish you had a spouse to have an occasional conflict with. Some of you are feeling just very aware that your friends are dating, they're engaged, they're getting married, and you're not. And you're kind of lonely. Some of you are feeling lonely for other reasons. Pandemic. Family that is far away. Just maybe just a lack of close friends. Maybe just bad choices that you've made that have isolated you from people. Maybe you just feel misunderstood, you feel just judged, you just feel overlooked. Some of you, this week, you fell into sin again. It's, it's the sin that you said you're going to stop. You want to stop the sin. You just want to change. You want to stop saying these things and watching these things and thinking these things. And it just happened again. Some of you might be sore again this morning. 
didn't really have a good night's sleep. Again, your body is aching, it's, it's weak, it's getting weaker and you know it, you're sensing it. The medication, the doctor's appointments, the tests, you kind of knew this was coming, but adjusting to this is it's a little harder than you thought it was going to be. You just want to say it's okay, and you want to be content with just what happens, but it's hard. And I just don't want you to leave this morning thinking that everything we talked about regarding the glory and the supremacy of Christ is disconnected from today, from right now. And so I want to point out four implications of seeing Christ in all his majesty that I hope will connect really, really connect with the kinds of struggles and pain and anxiety and fear and desires that maybe you have today. It's my last point, point number four. The Christian life is lived by striving to see the supremacy of Christ. This is what we do today. When we leave this room, what do we do? What do we do this week? We strive to see the supremacy of Christ. And my, my central text for this last point is uh, one of my favorite parables. One of the shortest parables, too. This is Matthew chapter 28. Sorry, not 28. Matthew 13, verse 44. I think we might have that one on the screen as well. We can just turn there. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If you're a Christian, this short little verse is an illustration of your life. This is an illustration of your relationship with Christ and your relationship with everything else. Being a Christian is finding a treasure that was once hidden. You can see it, but now you can see it. And and then you sell everything to buy that field so that you can have that treasure forever. And and I hope that after everything I've said this morning, you, you trust me that the treasure is Christ. That's what we found. That's the treasure. So what does this parable have to offer us this morning? What help, what encouragement, what comfort is there in this parable connected with seeing Christ? I told you four implications. Number one, seeing Christ, seeing Christ is sufficient. After the man finds the treasure, when he's trying to come up with the money to buy the field, notice he doesn't need to triage his possessions into pile number one, garage sale, pile number two, auction, pile number three, to keep. There's no need to triage his possessions. Why? Because the treasure is everything. He found everything. What he found is enough to sustain him through everything. He doesn't need anything else. And so when you became a Christian, when you received the Holy Spirit who removed the veil from your eyes so you could see Christ, 
at that point, you received everything. Our sovereign Lord, the sovereign king of the universe, is enough to carry you through this season of loneliness, parenting struggles, pastoral exhaustion, maybe financial instability, family dysfunction, health-related tears. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Second Peter 1 verse 3. Let me show you one more thing here. Keep, keep your maybe finger on Matthew 14. Now, let's go back to John, to John chapter 14. We were here a little bit ago. I want to show you one more thing from John chapter 14. Again, this is when Jesus is about to get arrested. He's having that conversation with Philip. Philip, let's read verse 8 one more time. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus, I'm worried. I feel overwhelmed. I don't know what I'm going to do. You're talking about you're going to die. You're going to get arrested. What about us? What's going to happen? I'm worried. But Jesus, if I could just see the Father, that would be enough, says Philip. Do you see that? Show us the Father and it is enough. That's all I need, Jesus. I just need to be able to see God in my fear and my anxiety and my trials. I just need to see God. Will you do that for me, Jesus? Jesus tells Philip, I'm right here. Seeing Christ is sufficient. It's enough. This word enough, verse 8, it's, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he's speaking to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Same idea. Seeing Christ is enough. So let's back up to the parable. Matthew 14, verse 33. Did you notice what happens after the man finds the treasure... And before he sells everything? What happens after he finds the treasure before he sells everything? There's something important there. Let's take one more look. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found, here it is, and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The treasure is covered up. Why do I think that's important for us this morning? Well, because in a sense, our treasure is covered up, isn't it? Christ is here, but we don't see him. He's covered up in a way. He's, he's hidden from us in a certain way. And oh, wouldn't it just be so great if we could just pull up a picture of Christ, just remind ourselves, and, yes, this is Christ. He's covered up. He's not here. He's, he's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. If only we could just carry 
the treasure with us, a reminder, just a proof of the treasure, we can. It's right here. His word is what has been given to us. The treasure is covered up. But this gives us glimpses of that treasure. When we forget about that treasure, was this treasure really worth everything I'm selling? Yes. The word of God gives us the glimpses of the treasure. The spirit of God uses this book to give us glimpses of the supremacy of Christ. This is why Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 17, I pray for you and I thank God for you. But when I pray, I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The Spirit of God is in the business of constantly reminding us, opening our eyes, enlightening the eyes of our hearts so that we remember the hope, so that we might remember the riches of the inheritance that is waiting, so that we remember the greatness of His power. He is powerful. We need to be reminded of those things. The Spirit does that. If we could just leave this room this morning having seen and having tasted the goodness and the kindness and the power and the patience and the forgiveness of Christ, that would be enough. So that's my first implication. Seeing Christ is enough. Number two, seeing Christ is transformative. Seeing Christ is transformative. There are things so awesome, so reality-altering, so perspective-shaping, that when we see them, we're changed. Have you ever witnessed someone crying out to God for the first time? Just for forgiveness and being saved? Just witness that? Have you ever watched maybe someone die in your arms or in the bed beside you? Or have you ever seen maybe firsthand just poverty and hunger and desperation in so many parts of the world? Seeing certain things just, wow, changes us. I think the word of God, the New Testament, makes it clear that seeing Christ, seeing Christ also changes us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's beholding the glory of God that transforms us. Do you still have some New Year's resolutions that you're working on or some changes you'd still like to see in your life? 
Are you wanting to speak more kindly? Be more generous. Again, just kill the desires of the flesh. Seeing Christ, beholding Christ, is what leads to those changes. What causes the man in the parable to change from being a possessor and a, a, a accumulator of things to being one who sells everything? It's just seeing the treasure. You just see the treasure, it changes everything. You're transformed by seeing. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Christ is the way we lay aside these weights, these sins, these habits. It's by fixing our eyes on Christ. Striving to see the supremacy of Christ is the way we become more and more like Christ. Third implication. Seeing Christ is sufficient. Seeing Christ is transformative. Seeing Christ is freeing. Seeing Christ is freeing. Did you notice how free the man who found the treasure is? He's not shackled to his possessions. He's not dependent on anything. He's not reliant on anything. He sells it all. Everything is disposable. Everything is replaceable. He is free from anxiety about everything. That's what Christ does to the Christian. When we behold the treasure and we know that nothing can take away the the treasure, freeing. And there's a kind of freedom also that comes from seeing Christ and it's freedom from sin. Paul really highlights this in Romans chapter 6. How Christ frees us from sin. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here from Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 15. You might have those up as well. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So in this part of Romans, after talking about how amazing God's gift of forgiveness is, Paul anticipates a possible question. Paul, if God's grace is so amazing, if God is so forgiving, does that mean that we can just keep on sinning since he's going to just forgive us anyways? And Paul says, by no means, of course not. But listen to what he says next, beginning in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who are slaves to sin where sin is like a slave master and it dictates how you live and what you do. And there are people who are slaves of righteousness, where righteousness dictates what you do and how you live. 
Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Christians, Paul is saying, were once slaves of sin. But you now have been set free from sin. Sin once dictated our lives. Do you remember what that was like? This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were just following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived and the passions of our flesh, just carrying out the desires of the flesh and the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That was us before we met Christ. But then what happened? Then we were set free from those things. Having our eyes opened, having our eyes able to see Christ liberated us from sin. We can now see temptation for what it is. We can now see the poison of sin for what it is. And now Christians are the only people who can look at that and say, I don't want that. I'm going to go this way. Thank you very much. And everybody else is here. Why? Because you can see Christ. You've been set free from those things. The chains that held you and I captive to these addictions and these habits and these fleshly desires, those chains are gone. It doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. It just means we don't have to. We're free to just walk away. We're free from that. Seeing Christ frees us from sin. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeons flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's how the hymn goes. That's what happened. Last implication. Seeing Christ is joy-giving. Seeing Christ is joy-giving. Do you remember seeing this in the parable? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man finds hidden in a field. and It's covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. The selling of the stuff is an overflow of the joy. The first response to seeing the treasure, to finding the treasure, is joy. Joy then fuels everything else. When you see these things that I've mentioned, when you see these things become a reality in your life, joy is the result. Do you know what happens when a Christian goes through a really exhausting, trying, painful season of life, 
And then when they begin to make their way out of the valley of the shadow of death, and they, they look around, and they look at themselves, and they realize, I'm still a Christian. I still love Jesus. I still want to come here on Sunday. I still want to sing. I still want to pray. I still want to have life groups, and I still want to meet with people. And Christ was sufficient for me. That's all, he need, that's all I needed. Do you know what happens to you at that point? You rejoice. When, when, when you can not just sing, but really mean, you can take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul, with my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing the billows roll. This gives us joy when you experience that. And what, what happens when you begin to see godly changes in your life? When you begin to see the Holy Spirit really is at work in you, changing you to become more like Christ. What happens when others around you begin to notice you're changing? You're, you've been particularly patient. You've been particularly humble. You've been particularly generous. And, and you begin to experience for yourself that seeing Christ and pursuing Christ really does transform you. It really does. Doesn't that bring you joy? Don't you rejoice when you're like, I am not what I used to be. And I can see it. When Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. is not just another Bible verse that you quote, but it's a reality that you see in your life. Don't you rejoice? And isn't there sweet joy as the Lord helps us to kill our sin? Isn't that one of the sweetest joys of Christians can experience? Just finding ourselves being less and less enamored by the world, less and less tempted by sin. Experiencing the freedom of walking with the Lord in godliness. Friends, if your soul is craving joy this morning, what you need is to see Christ anew. You need to see Christ together. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we sing. This is why we pray. And this is why we're about to take the Lord's Supper together. As a, re- as a reminder of Christ. The mission of God. And thus his desire for our lives. Is that we might see the supremacy of Christ. So that we may be satisfied in him. So that we might be uh, experience true joy. So that we may be transformed. So that we might be changed. So that we might be freed from sin. So I'll close with maybe some familiar words from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.